everybody, welcome to episode 15 of Literary Disco, the Libertine episode. Today we will start with our usual bookshelf revisit, where Todd, Julia, and I take something down from our bookshelves to discuss. And then we will talk about our first play, The Libertine by Stephen Jeffries, a play from 1994 about the 17th century poet John Wilmot, the second Earl of Just as interesting as it sounds, by the way, people. Just as interesting. Todd, why can you never contain yourself until the correct time? Until you've been introduced. I have have no impulse control. And last, but certainly not least, we will bring back the dreaded Poet Voice, a segment wherein Todd recites three selections in his horrible yet somehow accurate (laughs) imitation of a bad poetry reading, and Julia and I try and figure out which one is a real poem. I am actor and filmmaker Ryder Strong. Joining me are essayist and radio personality Julia Pastel and novelist and critic Todd Goldberg. Welcome, guys. Hello. I would like to go first. Please do. Because I have the greatest bookshelf revisit ever. Okay. Uh, uh, Let us be the judge of that. Well, it's because I'm actually revisiting my bookshelf. So this weekend, um, my wife and I did the annual Goldberg family book purge. Um, I am the only one in the Goldberg family who calls it that because my wife doesn't even use the last name Goldberg. So there's that. (laughs) But we went through all of our bookshelves and got rid of books that we don't want, don't need, have doubles of. Um, and I have a shitload of books. I have like, like 3,000 books in my house. Um, so it was uh, a long and arduous process. But the, and we had actually, it's not really yearly because we hadn't done a long time. <laughs> so it's maybe the bi-decadely Goldberg Book Purge. And I was sort of fascinated by the number of books for which I have doubles of. Books that I've bought twice mm. or for some reason have several editions of inexplicably. And, um, sounds like a really easy purge because you're so wasteful. I am so wasteful, (laughs) but it got me thinking about all the times I have been in a bookstore and this actually hasn't happened recently because I don't remember the last time I was in a bookstore, um, which is sort of frightening. (laughs) Um, but there'll be a new edition of a book and I'll be like, Oh, there's a new edition of Richard Ford's rock Springs. I'm going to buy it. And I'll, so I have. Really? You do that? I do. And just because so, the cover looks different or yes. you just like the way? Oh. Yeah. I, I, wow. You are such a sucker. I know. And so I have. Are you a hoarder these... of books? Is that what your bookshelf visit is? I, I have. So, for instance, um, one of my favorite writers is Daniel Woodrell. And he put out a book last year called The Bayou Trilogy that collected three of his early books and put them into one huge book. So I bought it. And I also got a copy from a publicist for it. But in addition to all that, I already had the three books and I'd read them and I'd had them for years. And then I also had, for reasons I do not know, French editions of those books that I have no memory of buying. So my wife would say, do you need the Bayou Trilogy when you have all the books? And I'd say, yes. And she'd say, (laughs) why? And I'd say... I have no idea, <laughs> but I, it's a very strange compulsion and I don't know why I do it. And I, I think I probably need a little help with it. And I'm turning to you guys. Do you guys ever do that? Do you guys ever buy multiple editions of the same book? I do not do that, but I have, well, actually recently I was in Barnes and Noble because that's the only real bookstore around me now, which, you know, I, when I lived in New York, I would go to small bookstores and, you know, obsessively talk to the clerks and Mm -hmm. have them recommend me books. Um, But I was in Barnes & Noble, and they've released some really nice 
hardcover cheap versions of classic books and yes. the covers oh, yeah. are so beautiful yeah. that I you want them. Too. So I'm right. I'm coveting them, you know, but that's not normal. But my problem when I purge books is that for me there are only two categories of books. Books I've read, mm-hmm. which I want to keep around to remind myself of how well read I am. <laughs> and books <laughs> that I haven't read but that I, I could never give away a book that I bought on a whim right. and haven't read. So I feel trapped between these two, you know, walls closing in on me. That's how I feel, too, that I can't get rid of a book I haven't read just because I haven't read it. Even yeah. though I, have for some reason, over 10 years or whatever, decided not to read it. But, you know, lately when I've been buying books and I didn't know this was going to happen, you know, I, I get ebooks now. I've been buying a lot more ebooks, um, which makes me sad because uh, I love sort of the tactile experience of being around all of my books and standing with, we have this, well, you guys have both seen my house, but we have this sort of nice area where there's like five bookshelves and all the books are, you know, six feet high. And sometimes it's like, you know, go through and look at the books and touch them and open them up. And I love doing that. And of course, oh, you it's can't... like looking at a part of your brain in a way, right. yeah. you know, cause it's like, you're looking at your memories of all these experiences, exactly. and worlds that exactly. you've been in. I you know I used to collect first editions. Mm-hmm. Um, oh god! When I, yeah, when I was a teenager and and I was making television money, I bought a lot of first editions of really classic books. Um, and so I have like two or three hundred year old books, and I have signed first editions of a lot of famous. Oh books. my god! Like yeah, what? Um, I have a first edition Ralph Waldo Emerson's Nature. <gasps> I have a second edition Leaves of Grass. Wow. I have I have a lot I have a first edition Sound of the Fury I have a signed first edition uh, East of Eden a signed first edition You're going to get Men. robbed after I this episode I stop talking about it. <laughs> and they're all available just to kick in my door So no I mean I you know I I I was really into it I was a teenager and I bought all my favorite books essentially my favorite authors and my or my favorite eras I would find I would go to book fairs and you know I stopped collecting first editions because um I sort of realized that I was being very materialistic in a way, that I was somehow trying to gain authority over books that I loved by buying the first editions. In other words, mm-hmm. it was like, it, it, I realized that, like, it was, well, if, if I own the first edition, then I'm the real fan of this book. And I realized <laughs> that that was kind of unhealthy. Like, what does that mean? Like, right. just mm-hmm. because I spent the money on this thing... You know, and of course it ends up being a good investment because these things have only increased in value as they become more rare and stuff. So I still have them, and I'm, 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 I hope to be able to keep them. I'd love to be able to pass them on to like my children. But I stopped right around when I was 19 or 20. I stopped buying first editions. I just thought like this is kind of an unhealthy mindset. Like owning books, I can't own these books. The text is what matters, and even though it feels like a piece of history, and it's, it, it, I realized that it was like this consumerist mentality or this material. I mean, I guess in a way that sort of extends to collecting in general, mm. but now I really like the idea of my beat-up, crappy paperbacks filled with my notes. I'm really yeah. proud of those, and I like owning those because those are actual memories, and I don't care about the physical object. I just care about the memory of it, and if I pass it on to a friend, if, they can, if they're willing to read past my notes and my underlinings, then <laughs> you know they're sort of seeing into my brain a little bit by looking at those notes, so that's worth keeping. But the material object itself being worth something, I sort of gave up as an idea. And I, but I still go back and forth because when people yeah. come over and they see my first editions, they we geek out for hours. Like it'll happen if somebody's a real reader and they come into my house, they'll be like, "Oh my god!" And we will. We'll get into it. We'll open up the books and we'll start discussing them, and it becomes this real touchstone sort of moment. 
Uh, so in some ways, I really do like owning them, but it became a thing, and I didn't want to keep it going. I was like, this is never going to end. Can um, I just say that the fact that that's what you did with your teenage money is... <laughs> he also got a lot of strippers. A lot of strippers. Let's, let's, not under, let's not undersell the number of strippers Ryder also purchased with his teenage money. Okay, so my revisit um, is a book that I'm sure you guys haven't heard of, but uh, all right. So we hired this guy to come to the Twain house for what's going to be obvious reasons in a second. Um, His name is Mark Siegel, and he wrote this graphic novel called Sailor Twain. Have you guys heard of it? No. I assume not. Okay, so... We obviously, we get a Google alert every time something Mark Twain related happens in the world. (laughs) And there are a lot. Guys, once you see Mark Twain, it's like learning how to do a magic eye. Mark Twain is everywhere. Uh, In in about half the books we've read, somebody will randomly mention Mark Twain or there's some opening quote or whatever. He's just really more of a presence than I ever imagined before. Um, He was such a big part of my life. But anyway, so this guy started writing this graphic novel, and what he very wisely did was start releasing, it's 400 pages long, Mm -hmm. and he started releasing them one page at a time online. Oh, wow. And, but I learned part of the reason it's so good is that he had it all planned out and plotted out beforehand, so the fans didn't direct the story or anything like that, which I think is really important. Um, but what's amazing about this book, which is about a riverboat captain who happens to be named Twain, but isn't Mark Twain. There are weird parallels. Uh, what's really incredible about it is the art, which is all done in charcoal. Oh, wow. Which is incredibly difficult for a comic because it smudges really bad. But it's about, um, you know, the Gilded Age and the, it takes place on the Hudson River and foggy riverboats and stuff. So charcoal is really the only way to go. So he gave this talk and he brought in the panels. And since charcoal is so smudgy, the panels are like three feet high and two feet wide. And he had to scan them down to, you know, this tiny little two inch square. So it's absolutely beautiful. It's really unusual to see a graphic novel done in charcoal. Um, And it's so detailed and it's so beautiful. And what I really love about it is that um, it's about a mermaid in the Hudson River, which sounds stupid. <laughs> no, that sounds but... awesome. That sounds kind of cool. <laughs> that sounds awesome. But uh, so mermaids are one of the last magical creatures that I have written off in my brain as stupid, and I don't care about them. <laughs> I'll accept a lot of magical things, but not you know? not um, a fish with tits. I, I, I don't like I don't like mermaids. I don't like zombies. And... You don't like zombies? No, zombies are. It's like saying I don't we like America. We talk about that another time. All right. <laughs> uh, Communists. Well, the reason I don't like zombies is that they're just, you know, they're meaningless. Like, unless the human characters in a zombie story are good, it gets boring really fast because they're just human meat walking around. <laughs> Who cares about that? They have no motivation uh, or backstory. That's our next anyway. literary disco t-shirt. <laughs> Human meat, just right across the Walking chest. Walking around. Literary disco on the back. Our next, our next but, shirt. Um, I realize, and this is a cliche thing to say, but you know, mermaids have been so like cutified and Disneyfied in my mind that I really got lost from the true meaning of a mermaid, which is that it's 
a symbol for anything that pulls you away from where you should be and is just mm -hmm. so haunting and so beautiful that can drive you to extreme despair and danger. And it really What's the is difference between a mermaid and a siren? Not nothing really. There's I no mean a mermaid difference. Yeah, there, I think a, a siren is the Greek version and that's yeah. the, that's it. They sing and lure you away. Right. And then I think the mermaid is just an extension of the siren myth. Although I don't know if in the Odyssey they actually describe the sirens. You just hear them. But you don't actually know that they're half woman, half half um Yeah, fish. you know, I don't think they they make the they fish bottom connection. Things that are part fish creep me out. I don't like that idea. Yeah. Well, I think that's the idea. It's supposed to be kind of creepy. It's only the Little Mermaid that made it or, sexy. Or uh, Splash with Daryl Hannah. Yeah. I mean, I wouldn't have sex with a mermaid. I'm just saying. You, I don't. How do you have sex with a mermaid? I don't know. Like I think that's what's difficult. Yeah, you just you just have to gill the hell out of a mermaid. I think. <laughs> gill the hell. You don't gill a fish. Idiot. What is a gill? You got a fish. <laughs> gill the hell. Out of I just gill the hell out of it. <laughs> Clearly has no experience with mermaids. I, I got to gill base with her. I gilled the shit out of her. What a prom. Oh my god. Well, anyway, I love this book. You can actually read it for free online one panel at a time. But the book itself is so beautiful that I think it should be purchased. But it made me fall in love with the mermaids. And it really moved me, like... Very deeply to think about, you know, what are the mermaids in my life that are distracting me from my true intention. Oh, like Todd that. and Ryder. We are the mermaids. <laughs> yes, Todd and Ryder. Do another episode. <laughs> yeah. Read exactly. a play. Um, all right. So for my um, for my revisit, I'm going to do something uh, or talk about something that is probably a little obvious. This is actually a very important poem to me. It's and it's a very famous poem, so that's why I feel um, um, it's Sunday Morning by Wallace Stevens. Oh yeah. This the reason I've been thinking about this poem and revisiting this poem is that twice this week, for some reason, I had really intense, long conversations about death and. Uh, potentials for afterlife and whether you know we go on after we die and, and stuff like that and i am a complete skeptic atheist agnostic um scientific rationalist whatever you want to call it um and i realized that in conversations that i was having with people about um the potential for an afterlife or any sort of transcendence in my mind i was quoting sunday morning and I actually referenced this poem, and I realized that not only is this one of my favorite poems just in the way it's written in the description, but um, it's actually, like, a very important work of philosophy for me. And I must have read it at the right time when I was 17 or 18, when I was thinking about these things and these big questions about life and death and spirituality and transcendence. And um, I realized that this, this poem is like a huge cornerstone of my brain, uh, if that in these very personal, intense discussions, this is where my brain went. And so I've been rereading it. I've reread it a couple times this last week, and I just love it so much. It's really, it's, it's a poem, the, it's, a, it's about a woman on a Sunday morning, and she starts thinking about the afterlife and about heaven and uh, the potential for, you know, there to be more to life than what we have. And... The refrain of the poem that comes back a couple times, which sounds a little dark, but is actually pretty beautiful, is death is the mother of beauty. And I love that idea because to me, um, you know, I, I, if I can be so bold as to interpret Wallace Stevens, uh, I would say that, you know, there's his, his basic 
thesis of this poem is that because we die, life is more beautiful and more meaningful. Because there is an ending, because there isn't an afterlife, we actually cherish life more. And that things are most beautiful because they change, and they wither, and they die, and so therefore every second is precious and wonderful, and we should cherish it. So this idea that death is the mother of beauty. Um, I'm going to read a couple lines. Just uh, The woman who's the figure in the poem says, she says, but in contentment, I still feel the need of some imperishable bliss. Death is the mother of beauty. Hence from her alone shall come fulfillment to our dreams and our desires. And then later in another stanza, is there no change of death in paradise? Does ripe fruit never fall? Unchanging, yet so like our perishing earth, with rivers like our own that seek for seas they never find the same receding shores that never touch that inarticulate pang. Why set the pear upon those river banks, or spice the shores with odors of the plum? Alas, that they should wear out colors there, the silken weavings of our afternoons, and pick the strings of our insipid lutes. Death is the mother of beauty, mystical, within whose burning bosom we devise our earthly mothers waiting sleeplessly. I just think this is the most like important poem ever written. I love it so much, and I hadn't read it in years, and I just thought I'd share that this sort of... Uh... I would like to note, though, that the word mother does appear. This is true. You're right. <laughs> I hate you, mother. I hate you, mother. You know, it, it's funny you should bring up the afterlife. <laughs> hey, you're... Is that something you've noticed? Here's something interesting about the afterlife. You know, I uh, likewise um, am, am basically uh, atheist, um, but I've noticed that um, the longer I'm married and the longer I have lived in true love, the more I need to have an afterlife. Yeah. It, it didn't matter when I was 16 or 17 or 18 or 19 or 20 years old, mm -hmm. but I think love engenders the idea that there has to be something beyond that so that you're not stuck being alone, you know, yeah. after one or the other dies. You or know, that, that somebody, you know, you don't lose somebody, right? I mean, right. that's I mean, that was the conversations that inspired bringing up this poem for me, and that's why this line that, that the, uh, is what I love about the poem is the, the structure of this woman questioning it on Sunday mm -hmm. morning, waking up, and, and she's she's looking around her house, and she's got like a, a bird that's dancing around her house, and, and she's just having this sort of lazy Sunday, but that line, I, she's, I still feel the need for some imperishable bliss. Mm -hmm. And I think we all do. You know, I love that because it's true. There is a human instinct for wanting to continue and wanting the people that we lose to continue, you know. Mm -hmm. and, and that's, I think that's something we wrestle with. And I don't think that that's something that the poem dismisses by any means. If anything, I think the poem celebrates that desire. It just indicates that that desire is part of life and that that mm -hmm. desire to continue is only so strong because we kind of know it can't continue, if that makes sense. Well, you know, I think, I, I think you can believe in an afterlife without believing in God, you know, that you can believe that energy persists um, because it's uh, thermodynamics, you know, and that's, that's the thing that I battle with, you know, not that we need to spend the rest of our time on literary disco talking about the end of our days and theology, but that's the sort of thing that, you know, you start to think about at some point that I don't believe some mystical man with a beard created all of this because I know too much science, but I also have to believe 
or else you can't contemplate your own death without thinking there's something else out there. And that's that, that's that mystical battle I personally wage, and that poem, I think, mm-hmm. touches on so explicitly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Wallace Stevens, I mean, I'm not an expert in him by any means, but he was from Hartford, which is where I live. So uh, when I first moved here, I had a big interest in him and read a lot of his poems. He, you know, for those who don't know, I think most people know this, but he you know, worked at a big insurance company. He's essentially like the opposite of what we think of as a poet. He was an insurance executive, and he composed his poetry while walking to and from work, and he never quit his insurance job because he really loved it. He really loved his corporate life. And anyway, so when I first started reading his poems and being in this area, Yes, they deal with metaphysical questions, but they're so grounded in the world and in the environment that I don't think that they're mutually exclusive. I mean, I don't think that his perception of an afterlife is that different from his perception of his life. Mm. And I don't know. I'm I'm not, like I said, a Wallace Stevens expert, but every time I read his poems, the philosophy is overshadowed by the perfect representation of this area. Uh, well, I mean, I've read a lot of Wallace Stevens. I wrote about him a lot in college. Um, he's really, he, I mean, he, he has a lot of poems that are wonderful about how what you see is what you get about the world. And he, he, he constantly ref- goes back to this idea and this question of how much of our experience of the world is a projection of our own mind onto the world and how much is it a, a perception that we receive from the world. So his, he has a gr- another one of his really classic poems. is called The Idea of Order at Key West. Um, and he has another great one called The Snowman that I would highly recommend. And then The Emperor of Ice Cream is his very famous poem. Um, I love him. I, I, I think he's, you know, one of the best. You should come next time you're coming around this way. There's a amazing monument to him, which is 13 Ways of Looking at a Blackbird. And it's the path from his house to the Hartford. There's one stanza on engraved in a boulder along the way. It's really awesome. I always get Wallace Stevens, uh, Wallace Stegner, and Wallace Shawn confused. (laughs) Inconceivable. (laughs) (laughs) I do not think you know the meaning of this word, (laughs) which probably does not make me an authority to speak on anything, pretty much. (laughs) On Wallace Shawn. Stick around for when we discuss the liberty next. All right, welcome back to Literary Disco. We are now going to discuss the first play we've uh, read. The last play. Disco. The last play. Uh, I definitely think we should stick with plays. Yeah, I um, agree. I, I love plays. The last play. <laughs> so, the Libertine is a play written by Stephen Jeffries. It was written in 1994. Jeffries is an English playwright. He's been writing for a long time. Uh, He won an award in 1977 for his first play. The Libertine was made into a movie, which I haven't seen. Did either of you see the movie with Johnny Depp? Yes, I saw it one night very late on cable. I'm assuming it's not any good because I hadn't heard of it until (laughs) I started reading this my memory of the movie is that it's um significantly different than from the book i remember big scenes in parliament oh yeah there's none of that yeah so the libertine follows the story of john wilmot which he was a real person he was the second earl of rochester 
Uh, he was born in 1647, and he died in 1680. Of syphilis. Uh, Is that true? Uh, oh, oh, yeah. yeah. Some, some, or of alcoholism or uh, a, a 19th century disease. Uh, so he was only, what, what does that make him, 33? Um, right. He was an English pl- uh, poet, playwright, um, but he was kind of just known as a man about town. He was called a wit uh, in King Charles II's court. Uh, he was good friends with King Charles, and um, I, I, it seems to me, just looking around the internet, that a lot of the things that the play dramatizes actually were true, mm-hmm. that he he became a, a lover of Elizabeth uh, Barry, who was a, an actress at the time, and uh, trained her how to be a better actor. She went on to be a very famous actor. He was a complete drunk, and he spent about five years of his life completely drunk and uh acting as a libertine, which I looked up what the word libertine means because I actually didn't know it. Ooh. And a libertine, according to Wikipedia, <laughs> is defined as a dissolute person, usually a person who is morally unrestrained. And I think the idea here is that uh, John Wilmot, or we'll just call him Rochester because that's how he's referred to in the play, Rochester is really a, um, a kind of disgusting figure who pushes the envelope and the moral boundaries of his time and place. Um, and he's in the court, and he hangs out with King Charles, and he hangs out with whores, and, <laughs> and he, writes he dirty drinks plays. a lot. And he writes satires of other contemporary plays. He makes fun of everybody and everything. He sort of just defies um, all the mores of his time. And, and his whole idea of embracing excess uh, kind of leads him to a pretty terrible end. Um, and this play follows him kind of in the last years of his life, in the midst of this drunken, awful period, as he meets Elizabeth, falls in love with her, and trains her in acting, um, but she ultimately kind of turns him down. Right. Uh, what did you guys think of the play? Well, you, you know, I, I'm, I've been mocking it uh, around the house, and you know, the, the problem I have sometimes with plays is, is pretty simple, which is that they're meant to be seen. They're meant to be acted. And I think I have a real mental barrier about reading plays. I get lost. Uh, I I can't get the sense of the characters very well. Um, I don't get the passage of time very well. So I have, just generally speaking, reading plays, a really hard time with them. With this one in particular, um, I had some tonal problems. I couldn't tell if it was supposed to be funny and then horribly tragic or if some of the tragedy was supposed to be funny as well because there's some awful tragic things that happened to it. And I think a lot of that is in the hands of the actors. And so I, it, it, was, it was, quite frankly, a slog for me to get through it. Hmm. But that said, I still appreciated some of the great touches. I mean, Jeffries is a wonderful writer. That much you can tell yeah. from reading anything yeah, he says. Yeah, the writing is so great. I mean, I, I think this is actually a really good play for us to read because I think it, it, it's about a literary figure. Mm-hmm. It's about a writer. Um, and there's lots of... Uh, impromptu poetry that I just really loved reading and that's really dense too. I mean, it's not, yeah. it's so smart. It's so dense and smart. Really There's so not a waste of word in this play. Um, uh, uh, act two. <laughs> act two yeah. gets a little long. You know, well, but I mean, that's not, but that's not, that's not a problem of the writing. I think that, oh, well, it is a problem, the writing in general, but I think the language is always so smart and well thought out. I think the problem is, that the story 
you know, it, it really leads to, a, it's, 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 it's about a man's downfall. So it's, <laughs> so, I think the first half of this play is inevitably going to be more satisfying because you're watching him take the piss out of the king, take the piss out of everybody around him, and he's an incredibly smart person. And, you know, the play opens with Rochester t- talking to the audience and saying, don't like me. You're not going to like me. And so it immediately sets up, it's a wonderful conceit. It, what it does is immediately sets up this idea that, that you're kind of like, ooh, it's, it's going to get ugly. He's going to be ugly. He's going to be mean. He's gonna, and I'm going to enjoy that. Right. And sure enough, the first half of the play, you do enjoy that. And then I think when, the, when it starts getting more tragic and the comedy starts getting sapped out of the situation, it's, it's not as much fun to read. I think that the beginning really, um, it's worth a read because it is so, the command not to like him makes me instantaneously rebel against not liking him. And I actually liked him throughout the play, even throughout his downfall. Well, and he says in scene, uh, this is scene 10, and this is towards obviously the end of the play. He says, I told you, I said you would not like me and yet you would not have it. You thought I would make a turn for the better, but you were mistaken. Because that's what we're trained for. We're trained when we see movies and we read books that, you know, people that we've learned to like, and Rochester's easily likable, even though he's an ass, um, that we expect that they're going to get something, you know, some epiphany that will change them. But he doesn't. He dies. Um, and that, you know, that's, I, I think it's, it goes against our our happy ending you know that we want a happy ending but it's not here for this and that makes the second act of the play hard i mean what do you think is the lasting impression of this character do you think that he was heroic in any way or um do you think that he's he stands for anything greater or has a positive effect i mean it seems he's he's beloved by the people around him and he's clearly celebrated by history i mean he's in in history he is a historical i mean he's one of these figures that is remembered and celebrated and talked about um do you think that the play is comes down as a condemnation of what this guy did or do you think that there's the play still holds up that he might have accomplished something in his life that that we is worth celebrating i i think you know it's fun to be around a raconteur you know the life of the party but then that guy's gotta go home and be miserable you know because he's alone he's drunk and his wife hates him not that i'm speaking from experience um (laughs) (laughs) but that's that's the truth of the libertine is that you know when he's at home with his wife his wife knows what he is and they have conversations about what he is and what she knows that he is. And so, you know, I'm, this is going to sound like a real leap here, but I'm, I'm sort of reminded in a way of like the first, the original Arthur movie, which is all about a drunk, you know, son of a millionaire who's got money. And, you know, it's the love of a woman that saves him. And that's what we want. Gets him off the sauce. Yeah, but she says in this one, John, I am ever your last resort. When your mistress has kicked you into the street and no innkeeper in London will give you credit, when you are wasted with disease and the last whore in Convent Garden refuses to attend to you, then and only then do you come to me. I love that. I love her. Nothing saves him. It, it's, it's interesting from our perspective because he's, he feels more contemporary than I think most characters from the 17th century would. Well, we have this idea of a rebel as a as an important figure, right? Like, we accept that in American culture. England in the 17th century, the idea of a character being able to turn in a play that the king asks him to write and have it be called Senior Dildo 
and have it be a play making fun of the king's sex life, which is what actually happened. I mean, that takes balls, right. right? I mean, that's it's one thing to right. think about that now, because that's just a rock star, right? That's just Eminem nowadays, or in the United States. Yeah, except Eminem isn't invited to live at the president's house. But back then, you would get killed for that or put in the tower at least for he could get away with it because he was of the upper class and because but also partly because his of his wit and his intelligence and his ability to navigate this social world he he survived he kept breaking the rules and yet survived and does that stand for something i mean is that is that a, a heroic act in any way or is he just despicable this play i mean a lot of plays echo this theme of someone being so bored that they must push forward in action and create action around them just to break out of the confines of their own boredom. And uh, I really saw that in this character. Some of the things he says are just so rock star like in his pushing of his own personal boundaries just to live what he thinks is an interesting life. For example, you think that was loving life, trying to steal the rising tide of vomit in the morning. <laughs> I mean, what's more rock star than that? Yeah. yeah, here's another one. I have to go too far, do you see? If I don't go too far, I'm just your performing monkey. You let me out at dinner and say, oh, look, Johnny's done a fart over the French ambassador. Then back I go. I won't have that. I must always exceed or I don't feel like I'm alive. I think for me, the best scene in the whole play is when he is instructing Elizabeth Barry and acting. Oh, yeah, I and love that scene. I, you know, I, mm -hmm. I think the he's fallen at their they're kind of falling in love, but they're also fighting and arguing about what the nature of theater is and acting. She asks him, why do you come to the theater? And he has this great speech, and he says, life has no purpose. It is everywhere undone by arbitrariness. I do this, but it matters not a jot if I do the opposite. But in the playhouse, every action, good or bad, has its consequence. Drop a handkerchief, and it will return to smother you. Mm. Outside the playhouse, there are for me no crimes and no consequences. A little bit later, he said, she, she says, but you are not content. And he says, contentment is the drug of fools. I prefer truth. And the truth is that we are animals scratching and rutting under an empty sky. Here in this theater, we can pretend that our lives have meaning. It's, I mean, it's depressing, but it's wonderful in the sort of prioritizing art, you know. And, and I, I think if there's anything positive about this character, it's this idea that that art and and pushing boundaries has a value unto itself it, it keeps us alive it keeps us awake absolutely and that in ages when you know lifestyles get so opulent or when people are above the law or, or this notion of boredom like you were saying julia when there's there's not much to live for because everything's taken care of for you what else do we have mm -hmm. but art to challenge ourselves and to challenge each other and, and question our lives let me ask you a question, Ryder, since you've actually been in plays before. Um, there's a, a wonderful book called, by Robertson Davies called Fifth Business, and it was the first time I'd ever heard this term used before, and I'm going to read what this term is. Um, he says in the book Fifth Business, those roles which, being neither those of hero nor heroine, confident, confidant nor villain, but which were nonetheless essential to bring about the recognition or the denouement, were called the fifth business in drama and opera companies. Organized according to the old style, the player who acted these parts was often referred to as fifth business. So, have you heard that term before? 
Yeah, I have. No, no. Well, it's a fantastic book, and it's it's the basis for basically everything John Irving ever wrote. Um, he was really inspired by this book, Fifth Business, and by Robertson Davies in general. But I was thinking about that in relation to this story, because Rochester is not a hero, and he's not a villain. He's the main character of this play, but he is inciting change in others, recognition in others. And I think that's an odd thing for a main character to do, that he is an instrument for other people, but ends up dooming himself. Well, he's a jester. He's a court jester. That's true. I mean, because it really the best, the most positive change in the play is, is Elizabeth's, right? I mean, right. She becomes and she this great him. actress, and she leaves him, and she is pregnant with his child by the end of the play. Um, but you see her become empowered, right? Because she's essentially a prostitute right. in the beginning. Right. Her options, I mean, being an actor in this time, of course, is only a step up from a, pro- barely a step up from being a prostitute. A lot's changed. You can have Ryder for $47. <laughs> the idea that, you know, she goes from thinking that he's going to, you know, give her acting lessons in quotes, and she shows up expecting him to just pay for sex, and he does, in fact... Mm-hmm. Uh, teach her how to act and then she becomes the most famous actress of her time um yeah i mean that goes along with what you're saying that he affects such profound positive change in this person and also you know if you look at it from a broader sense positive change for the era right for right. women in a time when you mm-hmm. you weren't they weren't being taken seriously as although actors. i want to give her her due credit because uh she is a wonderful character she's my favorite character in the play and i i really love uh you know some of their conversations. So, for example, in this scene where he kind of goes back to her and is, tries to give her notes again on a play, and then he realizes, even if I give them to you, you won't take any notice, will you? And she says, no, I won't. But I taught you once. I did teach you, didn't I? She says, you taught me to rehearse, to repeat a part over and over again so that I was so familiar with it and I was free to act. But most of all, you gave me confidence. You were the first person who watched me and understood what I was doing. She she basically says at a couple of points, like, well, you helped me, but I am still, you know, this is still me. This is still my acting choices. You inspired me to change, but you're not responsible for you can't take credit for me. I don't want you to take credit for me, which I found all those passages really, really inspiring. I think that Jeffries is, is sort of positing a, 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 a pretty positive view of the effects that this guy had. But don't you think that there are these figures that come like, it comes to my mind as somebody like Jim Morrison, right? Somebody who comes to epitomize the excess of an age in some way and, and who's able to articulate yeah. it and express it artistically, uh, and maybe not even wholly well themselves. Like I think most people like Jim Morrison because they, of the myth of his life, even more than they like mm-hmm. his music or his lyrics. But like I know that you know, growing up, I always heard him, you know, as this sort of, and mostly because of the movie by Oliver Stone. But this idea of him <laughs> as this like really important uh, uh, figure who like you know died <laughs> for a generation to feel something, or you know, it's an interesting. And even, yeah, Amy Winehouse is a person like that, too. Or, you know, even someone like Kurt Cobain, but not that I was profoundly moved by his death, but, and he's not a martyr. He's a fucking drug addict, you know? Well, this guy's a fucking so drunk, think, right? I mean, that we're, this... Right. So, uh, but, and so I think it's an interesting thing that, you know, sometimes it's also about um, these people that instigate change in society that we look back on through the rubric of history and say, oh, my God, they were so important, 
they were rebels, they did all these things. Well, they, and they died young for, you know, whatever reason that they died young, be it James Dean or Marilyn Monroe or um, Jesus. <laughs> yeah, Jesus. The reason I'll take issue with bringing Jesus into the mix um, <laughs> is because... Because he's yeah. the son of God. <laughs> no, no, not because of that. I, I, I think that he wasn't a figure of excess. Do you know what I mean? Like, but there's... No, there, we're true. talking that's about true. figures of, uh, of excess, people that are... are because, I mean, while Jesus was certainly a rule breaker of his time, it wasn't like... <laughs> yeah, I, we are rolling so deep today on Literary Disco, boys and girls. Jim Morrison called himself a shaman of some sorts, you know. He, he, and the, the lizard, lizard king. king. But he always referred, you know, and the idea of a shaman is somebody who sort of channels the energy of the people around him and, and through excess breaks through to the other side or um yeah. i don't know it's there it's interesting that there are these figures that um that return culturally lyrics i can't stand lyrics i can't stand sometimes i feel strange about what we've done to our rock stars you know they not only have to be the people who comment on our society and push against it but they also have to live in the public life yeah and it's interesting because it's not like it's like a nick caraway and great gatsby where he's just watching he is actually instigating the changes in people so it's it's a strange device probably to see on the stage too because he he literally is stirring shit up that's his yeah. job so oh here's actually a great line that ta- that's sums up a lot of what we were saying his friend etheridge who's a playwright had written a play about rochester called the man of mode Mm. And he's, he's talking to Rochester and he says, you couldn't have written a splendid play. You don't have the gift. You can fashion a lampoon and you can turn a line of verse. But I have caught the scent and flavor of our age and set it down for all time. The man of mode. You didn't write it because you couldn't. And Rochester replies, I didn't write it because I was too busy living it. I am the age. Mm. I don't want to be its chronicler. <laughs> oh, that's good stuff right there. You know, I- interestingly, and I know we've touched upon this in the past, um, but... I'm now re-interested in it before. Um, I just saw a documentary about um, Neil Cassidy's wife um, that was absolutely... Uh, it's very sad, and it's actually not available in America. I had to watch it online through a Which Swiss website. Caroline website. Cassidy or... Caroline, yeah. It's called Love Always Ca- Caroline. Fascinating documentary um, where she tries to go back and... She, she wrote a book called um, Off the Road where she you know, tries to debunk some of the, the myths you know about the beats and my wife wendy is reading all the beat stuff again because she'd never read it um earlier and talking we've been talking a bunch about it and i'd forgotten mm. a lot of the stuff which makes me want to go back and look at it but this documentary where she's going back and she's both profiting from and is a little bit sickened by um the mythology that has grown up around the beats mm-hmm. uh, is is sort of you know similar to this is that you know they all, well, most of them died pretty young, you know, Cassidy and Jack Kerouac, obviously. Um, and, you know, they chronicled it. They, they didn't have to, they both chronicled it and well, they Well, no, Neil it, Cassidy couldn't. Neil Cassidy was the heart of the beats, you know, and, and he never wrote right. anything. The most important thing that... No, he wrote some stuff. No, He's got some terrible. books. No, he wrote, his most famous is, a, he wrote a letter to Jack Kerouac, which birthed the entire, uh, it, it gave birth to what Kerouac called you know, spontaneous bot prosody, his writing style. Right. He based on this one letter that Neil Cassidy wrote, this like 18 page letter, but Neil Cassidy himself was never able to really write or finish anything. He was always writing a book or said he was writing something, but he was a complete 
drug addict and he was he was living it you know that's actually a really good example right and then you know jack kerouac uh was writing it for a period and then by the time he was 35 he was done and just drinking himself to death sometimes it stuns me that we expect people to both live in this excess in form and simultaneously communicate it artistically to the rest of us yeah i find it i've always found it kind of strange you know that we that we conflate the two things so easily and that i'm i mean in a way we mentioned this in our last episode about how if some writers had to be public figures nowadays they'd probably be forgotten as writers because they would be such assholes or something you know i forget how how we phrase it exactly right. but the idea that in today's world we know everything <laughs> about everybody's biography and who they are and, and their entire life story and how uh, actually that might not always be a good thing but sometimes people should just be an artist and that we don't need to know everything about them and that their life may not be that interesting or special Right. Well, it looks like Cassie did have a book called The First mm -hmm. Third that came out after his death in 1971, an autobiographical novel that probably no one has no. ever read. Well, I'm it sure someone has. But if you guys get the chance to see the documentary, it's online. Uh, Love Always, Caroline. Um, you, you see the, both the mythology and the truth, and it's a horribly sad um, documentary, yeah. too, because, you know, she's, she's had a I weird, read her fucked memoir. up life. She, yeah, she's written she's written a book. There's a book called Minor Characters, and then there's a book called Off the Road. I think Off the Road is hers, and Minor Characters is uh, Jack Kerouac's wife's book. Hmm. And they're really both sort of, you know, the women's perspective uh, from that time and how just screwed over they were and how forgotten and how tragic these guys' lives were. Wow. Yeah. Well, on that note... That's really depressing. <laughs> I can't wait to read it. We've had a couple downers in literary disco lately. It's time to get back to like Apparently a treasure so. island. Or... Maybe, uh, maybe we'll go ahead and read a Hardy Boys novel next and see if there's some, some date rape in that. <laughs> no, you know what we need? Pillars of the Earth. Dun, dun, oh, that's dun. a great idea. I've heard nothing but good things about Pillars of the Earth. Wow. Yeah, we should read it, guys. What do you we'll think? We'll have to record it next time. And we will talk very stilted and have a good time. Yeah, I bet it'll be fantastic. So this is going to be great, guys. On our next episode, we're going to talk about Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. I can't wait. <laughs>
and also the term I hate you mother um, because that's how most poems go in my experience so are you guys ready to to begin yes yes I plan to win here's the first one I was 16 Kevin was 26 it was my first job mother I arrived at the studio and met him he had platinum blonde mullet with a ponytail. He wore shorts and a tank. He was a vision mother. And then he had me lie down on the floor. I hate you, mother. That's the first one. That's not a poem. <laughs> you think? You don't know. <laughs> you don't know what's a poem. Mm-hmm. The next one. What can ever be more stately and admiral to me than mast-hemmed Manhattan? River and sunset, scalloped-edged waves of flood tide, the seagulls oscillating their bodies, the hay boat in the twilight, and the belated lighter. Mother! What gods can exceed these? Mother, that clasp me by the hand, and with voices I love, call me promptly and loudly. By my name, as I approach, I hate you, mother. And number three. <clears throat> Clear my voice. This is this one's pretty powerful. Mother, <laughs> mother, the cranial perks of your sweat session are still in play, while the ones who lazed about showed no improvement mother if you're going to be lying in a pool of your own sweat barely able to move focus mother on how good you feel over time it could help your brain to learn to love those thoughts i hate you mother Mm. okay the third one has got to be some kind of like online crossfit forum CrossFit? <laughs> right. It's like a P90X manual or yeah, something. Exactly. It's right. like work out, feel the pain, learn to love it. No, I actually I'm think sure. it's I think it's some kind of neuroscience essay or article about like the power of how working out is good for your no, for your wait, brain it's too. too. Bossy. It's it's not oh, clinical. It? It's it's got the like feeling of like a personal trainer gone wrong. Right. <laughs> the second one is clearly the poem. And and the second one is Or like a boating manual like an introduction to a boating thing but onward but um, yeah the first one the first one i think was a memoir i first met kevin mother when i was 26 <laughs> is this like a home alone thing kevin <laughs> it, no it's gonna be like what is it it's it went to the studio so it's something about it's either a famous musician or a oh my god actor. i bet it's like one of those women who like you know, wanted to be a model, but then got tricked into doing naked pictures for a creepy photographer. Right. I, I just want to state for the record that Julia Pistel is like a god. Okay. Are you prepared, Julia, for what these two things are? No. This is amazing. You were right. The second one is the poem. It's um, a poem by Walt Whitman. I thought it was going to be Walt Whitman. Crossing Brooklyn Ferry or? Crossing Brooklyn Ferry. I That's correct. <laughs> wow. The first one, the I was 16, Kevin was 26, 
is a slice of sort of memoir from the model Christy Turlington from oh. the current issue of uh, some women's magazine that is in our house like talking about the house first time. Or Vogue or something? Something like that. It's about the first time she met a particular makeup artist when she was just starting out as a model. Do I know about women's troubles or what? <laughs> Wait, but why is that the, a trouble? Is she, or is she somebody who... Yeah, she's saying she was taken advantage of when she was oh, a young okay. model. I don't know anything. I about. read a lot of Jezebel. A lot. Like, a lot of Jezebel. <laughs> the the third Jezebel. one, however, is, like a, is literally a... I took lines... Uh, every other line or so from an article in Women's Health about intensive cross training. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> that awesome. is absolutely amazing. It's not amazing because the amount of cultural messages I receive as a lady receiving these lady things while at the same time being aware that I'm receiving them is really astounding. You know, like that's, that's basically what it means to be a feminist in 2012 is you're like, I, I can hear this like stupid chipper voice telling me to work out, but also I'm going to do it. You know, it's like, that's the <laughs> complex. I've absorbed a lot of these narratives isn't even a good enough word i've absorbed this like fake chipper magazine voice that you're clearly drawing from even (laughs) if you're lying in a pool of your own sweat barely able to move focus on how good you feel over time it can help your brain adhere to those thoughts (laughs) how fucking stupid is that isn't that awful uh I believe I cleaned up in the last poet voice as well. Well, okay, so, so I think we should add an addendum, or we should, or we should add a variation on poet voice and have Julia do demon voice. Oh my <laughs> she, god! Oh, she reads different things in her demon voice. Gavin was twenty six. He I arrived in my den. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that was uh, that was poet voice, ladies and gentlemen. It seems like we'll have to wait another couple months to do it again, since uh, we have the idiot savant of women's magazines, Julia Pistel, <laughs> actively reading them all and is aware of when I'm trying to slip in a little, a little memoir from Christy Turlington and a little cross-training advice from the good folks at Women's Health. We'll catch you next time on what do we call it? Literary Disco. that's it for this week's episode of Literary Disco. Join us in two weeks when we take on The Pillars of the Earth by Ken Follett. Not just the book, but the miniseries and the audiobook. Like us on Facebook, facebook.com slash literary disco. Follow us on Twitter at literary disco. Thanks for listening.